what we're going to do is kind of a, an application of everything that we've learned. Um, and one of the things that we've, we've achieved in uh, our study of Western theology is this idea of what we believe in regards to God is going to shape everything else that we do in life. And it's going to have an effect on everything. Uh, and as we've gone through the cultural mountains of influence and things of this sort, and also political ideologies and, and how you, you see uh, the Noahic covenant, we've gone through the five covenants, we've gone through a number of, of areas, we've seen uh, salvation by grace through faith, we've seen justification, sanctification, and all these things boil down to an understanding of who the Lord is, and it's supposed to dictate how we operate. And we, we're not here just to gain uh, intellectual knowledge and, and grasp this Western Christian theology that has basically established uh, the, the freest nation on the face of the earth in the history of the world. But we're coming to a pivotal point uh, in our study, and that's what I want to cover tonight. And so uh, we're going to pray, and I'm going to see if this works. So join with me. Lord, thank you for your word. And as we open it and we study it, Spirit of living God, fall afresh on us, we pray. Uh, lead us into all truth as you promise. And God, give us wisdom. We ask for it because you say that if we ask, you'll give it freely. And so, Lord, we do ask for that. And we want you to be glorified. We want to understand what you have for us. And we want to be obedient to that. And so, Lord, tonight as we examine your word, I pray that it would inspire us and transform us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so open up to 1 Kings 18, if you would. 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, we go through Western theology. We're not going to read it right now, so don't I just have you keep your place there. We go through Western theology, and we, we gain an understanding, and with that understanding comes responsibility. And so we're looking at a world that the darker it gets, if, if we were to turn out all the lights in the room and make it pitch black and light one candle in the center of the room, everyone's eyes would focus on that candle. That would be the, the center point of our vision in the room. And that's where the Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. The darker a room gets or the darker the world gets, the more the light seems to emanate and shine. And what's fascinating about this day and age is that the more convoluted it seems to get and the more confusing it becomes, like we studied on Sunday with this transformation of, of the lizard man into a, 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 this man into a lizard goddess woman. Do you remember that on Sunday morning? And the more we follow this ideology and this confusion, and sin brings confusion, and Satan is the author of confusion, and, and no longer do we have the simplicity of Genesis 1, 27 and 28, where he said he made them male and female. Now we have on Facebook over 50 different gender types that we can ascribe to. And as we do these things, the younger the generation in the room, and I noticed this on Sunday, I could see the facial expressions, the younger the generation, the more they were hesitant to hear what was being said, because there's almost this, they have a feeling towards not wanting to hurt somebody. But yet they look at this and they go, well, that's logical. I mean, that's what God's word says. And we say, well, there's social justice. And we think that social justice, and this is what uh, the younger generations have been indoctrinated with. There's th this idea of social justice. There's no such thing as social justice. There's just justice. Social justice is the will of the people to decide what is right and what is wrong, as opposed to God's standard being the absolute standard and that everything else is built on that. And that's where we get this concept of theology. And as we study Western theology and we see this, this absolute and this moral foundation established, then you have... Um, uh, contrasting ideas or, or ideas that, that combat um, God's authority in, in, in the life of mankind. And it begins to dictate everything, whether it's education or politics. And we've gone down the line on this over and over and over through the weeks that we've done this on Wednesday nights. We looked uh, last week at this idea of inductive study and deductive study. Inductive reasoning, deductive reasoning. Inductive is this idea that there is an absolute. And, and based on this idea that we, we get the very first verse in the Bible that says, in the beginning God created. From that, we, have the, we induce that everything else is built upon that foundation. And so we go with that. And, and early on in, in uh, Christian history, this inductive reasoning then morphed without deductive reasoning. It morphed into this idea that only the authorities established what was right and wrong. So you had the king, you had the clergy. They told everybody what was right and what was wrong. And so you had the clergy saying that the earth is flat 
um, and, and Copernicus and, and Galileo were all ostracized in the church. And then in the age of reason comes this concept of deductive reasoning where you deduce by, uh, you know, as our founder said, the laws of nature and nature's God. You start to deduce that this is logical and it goes to this point. So inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning go hand in hand where deductive reasoning can, can assist in faith and faith can assist in deductive reasoning. So the two go together so that we don't become ignorant. The Bible says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman need not be ashamed. So we follow these concepts and these examples and it helps with our faith and it also helps establishing a culture that is, that revolves around it. So when we look at the concept of Elohim, God's name and that idea of singular plurality or unified diversity where you have, you know, unified, uni, uh, diverse fields of thought, whether it's sociology, um, uh, anthropology, they all are diverse in their studies, but they're unified in the purpose of glorifying God. That's that inductive reasoning that we have that foundation. It all points to God. And that allows us to understand the universe in which he's created us. We flourish in the realm of understanding who we are. We get that identity and that concept. We, we understand metaphysical concepts like love. But if we remove God from the equation and we just go to deductive reasoning, it breaks down over time because the same thing that happened to the church early on without deductive reasoning is the same thing that happens to science, deductive reasoning, without inductive foundations. And they go off into the stratosphere. And so now we have this complete confusion and we have the church that no longer engages in, in cultural transformation. They just stay within the walls of the church talking about, you know, this idea of the gospel, the gospel. And, and you've heard me say, I mean, I preach the gospel every Sunday. And the gospel, Ulangelion, which means good news, right? The good news is that sinful man has a way out. Uh, God died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. His death, burial, and resurrection is, is the atonement for all the world's sins. And those who would believe by faith, believe in their heart, confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord, they're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And you, 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 you receive that gift of salvation. Boom. And that's that, that, that faith component that brings in that inductive base. And now you have the deductive side of it and everything comes together. Now, if just in the church we stop at the gospel... And where it says in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to disciple the nations, that means that we've got to teach people to apply the deductive with the inductive so that culture, society is affected by this in a very profound way. And we have to contend for ideology. If the church just thinks their job is to preach the simplicity of that gospel without the rest of it being attached to it, we're not making, con we're not making disciples, we're making converts. And you've, you've heard the whole assessment of the Calvary Chapel movement, and I'll do it one more time. 1967, we start preaching the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And we preach the gospel, give an altar call every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We, we call people to Christ. They respond, Calvary Chapel, 51 years, 10,000% growth in 51 years. There's now, as I, I just found out, there's 1,700 Calvary Chapels around the world. We're responsible for the Harvest Crusades and some of the largest churches in America. And south of Van Nuys, there's over 350 Calvary chapels. But, but we've avoided this idea of applying deductive understanding as far as economics and politics and all these areas of, of other study and applying the gospel to that where we've, we've, we've created this uh, myopic gospel which I call the truncated gospel, where we just keep it to the simplicity of raising your hand, raising your hand, raising your hand. And it's all feeling instead of a mind applied to the truths of inductive base of in the beginning God created, and then the foundations of Elohim, singular plurality, unified diversity, focusing towards thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We avoid that as Calvary Chapel. So 51 years, we have the truncated gospel. And what's the result? In 1967, we had the fifth greatest gross domestic production, the fifth greatest economy on the face of the earth, right? This was the nation you wanted to come to if you wanted to start a business. We had a water delivery system that was the envy of the world. We had a secondary school system that was the envy of the world. 67, Reagan was governor. And here we are, 2018, 51 years later. 
And, and what do we have to show for this 10,000% growth of people raising their hand to receive Jesus, but not applying the deductive aspect, not, not engaging the culture, not making disciples of nations? What do we have? We no longer have the fifth largest GDP. We now have the ninth. We have the highest gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax. Reagan signed into law no-fault divorce, which destroyed marriage across America. We're the authors of transgender bathroom bills, and we lead the nation in abortion. So California alone, California alone is responsible for killing more human beings than Nazi Germany has done since Roe v. Wade 1973. So the question then remains, where's the power of the gospel? Why is the church in disarray? Why, why are we spineless? It's all about buildings, budgets, and baptisms. Property, butts in the seats. And, and God looks and says, where's the transformation? Where's my kingdom come? Where's my will being done? And, and, and the church begins to decline in attendance. Large denominations disappearing joining together with other denominations, trying to patch it together and hold it together. And we have no influence in the culture. And now the culture is shutting down the church. And so we're no longer a counter culture. We're a subculture. We're trying to acclimate to what they're telling us we need to be. And SB 2943, nobody's fighting it. When they took prayer out of schools, nobody fought it. When they took the Bible out of schools, nobody fought it. When they had no-fault divorce, nobody fought it. And, and what's the role? What are we to do? Well, in a moment, I'm going to read out of a passage of Scripture. But before I do that, I want to read to you a story. On April 9th, 1945, seven conspirators against Hitler were marched to the gallows and hung. It was just one month before Germany surrendered. One of the men hung that day was a pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And some of you probably read about it in this book that I had picked up by uh, Eric Metaxas. Um, but you go back a decade earlier, Hitler is on the rise. His stranglehold on the church in Germany was almost complete and no one seemed willing to act. The Deutsch Christen, German Christian, the movement had accepted Nazi ideology the global ecumenical movement was passive and indecisive toward Hitler's agenda. Bonhoeffer and his friends would soon form the Confessing Church and publish the Barman uh, Declaration, which rejected the compromise with Nazism much of the German church was making. So the German church was saying, hey, we're, we're tying in with Nazism. And the Confessing Church said no. But, but now Bonhoeffer's pleading for decisive action. And it was at that moment that Hitler said, you know, I'm going to take care of your pensions. I'll take care of your churches. I'll allow you to meet on Sundays. You can sing your hymns. You can do these things. And Bonhoeffer said, I'm not worried about the pension. I'm not worried about the, the building. I'm, I'm worried about the soul of Germany, at which point Hitler said, leave the soul of Germany to me. And it was, it was he and, and, and Martin Niemöller who stood in, in opposition and were ostracized by the rest of the clergy. Now, it's fascinating that you step into office and the pushback I get stepping into office is not from the congregation. The pushback that I found early on stepping into office was a pushback from the clergy because it's making it uncomfortable. And that's what Bonhoeffer did. He made it uncomfortable. I'm no Bonhoeffer, trust me, not by any way, shape or form. But in, in one sense, I, I kind of felt that aspect of it. Why are you doing this? Politics is dirty. Well, it got worse for Bonhoeffer, as you know. April 7th, 1934, he wrote a letter to Henry Louis Henriad, a Swiss theologian who headed the Ecumenical World Alliance. He said this, a decision must be made at some point, and it's no good waiting indefinitely for a sign from heaven that will solve the difficulty without further trouble. Even the ecumenical movement has to make up its mind and is therefore subject to error like everything human, but to procrastinate and prevaricate simply because you're afraid of erring when others, I mean our brethren in Germany, must make infinitely more difficult decisions every day seems to me almost to run counter to love. To delay or fail to make decisions may be more sinful than to make wrong decisions out of faith and love. He's looking at how do you stop this menace? 
If you, do you understand what is being shared from the dais and what this man is saying and what he is, is, is declaring from the dais? It is, it is complete evil. Now, this is Bonhoeffer. He's a voice crying in the wilderness. But Hitler, he was decisive. He was, he was committed. This man went to prison. Uh, he, he fought hard. Uh, while in prison, he wrote copious amounts, and he did uh, Mein Kampf and, and continued to muster and fight and, and prepare. He was decisive. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew, and, and let me just tell you something. Evil is decisive. Radical Islam, it, there's no question in their mind what they want to accomplish. But we, we can't even define who the enemy is. Our, our ideology, our theology doesn't operate itself in a deductive manner to contend for the ideology of the world. We think love is passivity, but Hitler was decisive. The ecumenical world alliance was indecisive. They kept hoping things would work themselves out. They kept waiting for the perfect moment, the perfect choice, neither came. And even at that time, you you look at the the world leaders in the political realm, like Neville Chamberlain, you know, thinking peace was, was the absence of conflict and just avoiding conflict at all costs because they'd come through World War I. They wanted to avoid conflict. They'd give the Sudeten land. They'd give whatever was necessary. They didn't want to contend with Hitler. They wanted to stand back passively. They're going to reason. They're going to come to understanding. It doesn't work that way. Evil is never tolerant of good. And a lie is never tolerant of the truth. And the reason why I share this is because we're going to take a look at how decisive Hitler was, how indecisive the church was, and one man in the body of Christ who became decisive and transformed an entire culture. But let me just share this one last thought before I get into the study. During World War II, only 10% of the population were members of the Nazi party. Did you hear that? Only 10% of the population of Germany in World War II were members of the Nazi party. Does anyone know how many gay couples are married in the United States today? Anybody? Less than 3%. And yet, who writes the narrative? Who's responsible for indoctrinating our children and, and, and what is being taught as history now? Where's the church? Where's our voice? Where's this concept of not indoctrinating, but educating? Where's the concept of liberty and freedom? Who's teaching it? Where do these concepts come from? We've gone through it in Western theology. Apostle Paul says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. We've studied liberty. We've studied freedom. We've gone through all these, how the founders came up with it. And this is the idea of inductive and deductive application. You see, in World War II, most people just went along. The 90%, they just went along. I I, I just want to be left alone. Now, granted, there isn't a single person in the room that would just like to be left alone. Can I get an amen on that? But we don't have that luxury as Christians. We don't have that luxury as Christians. Most just followed the line of least resistance, more committed to their own comfort and ease than the real purpose. Martin Niemöller was a Protestant pastor in Germany who initially supported Hitler, but he later became an outspoken critic of the Nazis and was arrested in 37. He spent most of the war in German concentration camps. Here's a statement on how the Nazis took over Germany. First, they came for the socialists. This is Niemöller. First, they came for the socialists. I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists. I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. In his letter to the Ecumenical World Alliance, Bonhoeffer was trying to shake them out of their passive indecision before it was too late. He was not successful in doing that. You see, the problem with evil is that it slips up on you. It doesn't jump in your face with a pitchfork and a red tail. It comes disguised. I want to read this to you. The words of the, uh, the, the, the problem is not just what happened and is happening. The problem is also where this is going. First, Hitler only deprives Jews of their citizenship. No one is killed. In many ways, their lives could continue as is, 
but a step is taken in a direction that happened in 1935. By 1938, Jewish businesses are shut down and all Jews must carry an identification card. By 1940, they're moved into ghettos, forced into concentration camps. The process is usually done in stages so that people slowly accept the change. You've heard how to boil a frog without reacting. You put them in water and slowly turn up the heat. And that's what Hitler did to the Jews. You've heard me often quote Edmund Burke, the only thing for necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And I say this because it didn't take a lot. And as we've gone through the idea of thinking virtues and doing virtues, you remember that? Aristotle said you have the thinking virtue and you have the doing virtue. The doing virtue is passion. You're driven by hunger and sex and all those other things that are debase human passions. But the thinking virtue is using your intellect to make the right decisions on the, on the doing virtues. So if you wake up in the morning and you're hungry, instead of eating a cold piece of pizza and having a carb load and getting heavy, you have a protein shake and you take some vitamins and you do some exercise. That's the thinking virtue applied to the doing virtue. You have a passion. But the way that you suppress and take away the freedom of mankind is to remove those two aspects because God said that, that we, it's spirit and in truth, that you're going to have a passion, but you're also going to have truth applied to it. And so the best way is just to make everyone passionate without conviction. And so what you do is you, you, you move them towards this passion, towards the doing virtues. And you just pump the airways full of pornography. And we saw that with the Benchayat and all, the, all that happened in 2003 in Israel when, when there was the Intifada and, and, and the Jews took over Ramallah and they began to pump pornography in the three television stations in Ramallah so that Everyone would be watching pornography, a doing virtue. It's hard to put that together with virtue, but, but watching pornography, and they wouldn't realize that they've been invaded. It's exactly what the Marquis de Sade did in the French Revolution, and, and, and pornography saturates a culture, and everyone becomes a useful idiot. Right? And if we just keep giving you what you want and promising you everything, we numb you down, and no longer are you ideologically capable of contending for truth. But the Bible says you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. It's not just knowing, it's doing. It's applying these two aspects. Well, this is what they did in Nazi Germany. They just dumbed them down. And what happened is the church became, the church became, the church became indecisive. So we've studied all of this. We've taken copious amounts of time to equip you. I've, I've had to go and study this and apply it and, and equip you and teach you. We've learned about the Declaration of Independence. We've learned about the U.S. Constitution. We've learned about American history. We've learned about Western European history. We've studied the theology. We've learned about Lex Rex. We've learned about all of these aspects. The Mayflower Compact, right? We've learned about the New England Primer, the old Satan Deluder Act, how this nation was founded with this concept that if our children are not uh, educated to read, they're going to be bound up and just be uh, owned by the doing virtues as opposed to the thinking virtues. And so the very first public school act was to teach our children to read. They called it the old Satan deluder act because Satan doesn't want our kids to be educated. And faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And so you look at the New England primer and it's all scripture. And you had a, you had a biblical vernacular that, that saturated. You had three great awakenings in the eastern seaboard. And all the great movements in American history, whether it be the Revolutionary War or the Civil War, in each of these, these moments, there was always a great awakening prior to those, those seminal events in American history. So that we would deal with a moral issue where we would remove from the warp and the woof of the fabric of our country slavery, which folks never thought would happen. And they were silent during that time, but it was a few that stood up and said, this is wrong. Only one in nine Americans fought in the Revolutionary War. We went through 1776. We did the whole history of 1776. How it boiled down to less than 5,000 troops that turned the tide of the war. And, and this, con this contest for liberty. That the Declaration of Independence wasn't for America, it was for the world. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary. The consent of the governed, created equal. All of this is for right now. All that we've studied is for right now. And there's yet a handful of people. I know it's not a Sunday morning, but you've been coming week in and week out for such a time as this. 
And so the application tonight is in 1 Kings chapter 18. We'll pick up at verse 20. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. He had an Elijah complex, right? But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bowls and let them choose one bowl for themselves. Cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. That's a good idea. What's he doing? He's calling for the question. He's calling for the question. And you know what? I am, and I've said this, I am really excited to be a citizen of the state of California right now. Because if anything's going to happen in California, it must require a miracle. No offense to our Texas friends who are here. But everyone who's spineless in California has already moved there. Except for a couple. The idea is we stay here to fight. And the only way California is going to turn is by a move of God. And as I shared with you, I went to the event that they had spent thousands of dollars on promoting. In a large Korean church, charismatic movement, sent it out to all the charismatic churches, largest, and they, they brought in the most amazing speakers. And when it came time to start, and these speakers were paid a lot of money, there wasn't one person there. Not one. And we looked at each other and we thought, what do we do? Because gone are the days where you can do these big events. In California. You might be able to do them in Texas. You can't do them in California. That's over. And so we spent time praying. And when we finished praying, the room started to fill. But we started to realize, not by might nor by power, by my spirit, says the Lord. And the one resonating theme in the prayer time is, God, we have tried everything we can in our power, and it is fruitless. Lord, unless you move, we're done. We need a miracle. And so what happens is God's people have given up trying to manufacture church as we studied in Isaiah, right? Your festivals and all the things you've done, those are, those are an anathema to me, God says. And, and, and all of a sudden, people start to begin to pray. And, and all the places I've traveled, small groups of people, oh, we're going to get 250 people. We get there, there's 40. And as we get there and the 40 people, we begin to pray. And the conviction that God must move if anything's going to happen in California, this is exciting. I just want to put you in this time and place with Elijah. It's similar to when, when Peter is walking and he comes up to the crippled man and the man is begging for alms. And Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You know that part? And he began leaping and dancing and praising God. I have to tell you, me, I go up and say, uh, silver and gold have I none. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I grab his hand and drag him across the floor. <laughs> and people say, you don't have enough faith. If I could muster faith, if that's what it is, I got to work it up. You know, people say, you don't have enough faith to be healed. You've heard that. But Jesus helped us with that one because he pointed to the guys on the roof and he said, your faith has healed this man. So anyone says, I don't have enough faith. I look at them, then obviously yours can help me. Can I get an amen on that? The idea, faith is letting God be God. And he has this uncanny ability to put us in a place where we can rely on nothing but him. That's why I'm excited to be in California. There is, there's, there's not a snowball's chance in hell. And you have to take that out because people say I can't say hell anymore. That we're going to survive this without the Lord. Yeah, it's kind of exciting. I get jazzed about it. And so here you have this idea of in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Imagine Elijah. He's saying, okay, take this and these 450 prophets over there, cut it up and put it over there. 
And then take mine and put it over there and put it on the altar, but don't put any fire to it. And, and it's showdown at, at, at the OK Corral. And, and he says, you guys go first. Because I got to figure out what the heck I'm doing here. He's like, oh, please, 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 please. Have you ever been in a situation so bad that you're distraught as a Christian? I got a call late last night from a brother whose child has gone off the rails on the mission field, just struggling. Child's doing drugs, needs to come back, ask for help to fly back. Uh, the, 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 the child is no longer calling them mom and dad, but by their first names. Poured their life into this child. This is, a, this is a person of faith who's been on the mission field for years and years and years. And just devastated. How do you, how do you process that? Is it lack of faith? I mean, I, that, they have more faith than probably anyone in the room. They left everything to go do that. He, he came out of the worst lifestyle imaginable. Their, their whole life is a miracle. I can share with you miracle after miracle of things that have occurred in their life. But right now, they're, they're looking and saying, God, where are you? We've all had that. A faith not tested isn't a faith worth having. You know what's interesting is that the Lord, and, and Elijah's assisting in this. He's taking the lead on it. He's walking out and he's, he's calling for the question and he is putting his faith on the line and he's saying, all right, you guys do a sacrifice. We'll do a sacrifice because we have to contend for this culture and there are a lot more of them and they're going to mock me and ridicule me and make fun of me. But if God is God, he is going to show himself and he'll show himself strong on those on behalf of those who seek him. Lord, I'm seeking you right now. And he lays it out there. So here are the two sacrifices. And he says, you call in the name of your gods and I'll call in the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And you know what Elijah's saying is, Lord, this is up to you. This is up to you. I can't light it. You may not even want to show up. You don't. I'm in your hands. They're going to behead me. It's, it's, they'll probably behead me even if you do light it. But let's do this. For Bonhoeffer to step out in faith, he was finished. It was only a matter of time. And it was one of the last directives from Adolf Hitler before he ended up shooting uh, uh, Eva Braun and then killing himself. One of the last directives of Hitler was to hang Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So it says at the conclusion of verse 24, so all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Verse 25, now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bowl for yourselves and prepare it first for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull, which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. And then they leaped about the altar, which they had made. So one of the things I used to tell kids when I coached is, don't trash talk unless you got game. Does anyone know what that means? Don't trash talk at all. But if you do, you better have something to back it up. You know, it's, it's, it's like, if, if you're not very good at it, trash talking is not going to win this game for you. Your talent is, your ability is, your teamwork is. And um, at this point, they're, they're mustering up everything they've got, morning till afternoon, and then now they begin dancing. Now, before we read any further, I'm going to read to you out of 1 Kings chapter 19. It's, and, and I want to show you God, okay? And, and this is later, the next chapter, God shows himself to, to Elijah. And I want to show this to you. Uh, God said, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a still small voice, just a little whisper. So it was when Elijah heard it, 
that he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And it goes into this whole picture. God spoke to him, not in the, the earthquake or the fire or, any of the, or the wind. He spoke to him in a still small voice. So keep that in mind. Let's come back to the passage because it makes it a lot more fun. So they're leaping around the altar. They're dancing. It is a spectacle to behold. Yes? You have that picture in your head? They're tearing their clothes or cutting themselves. They are doing anything they can. And Elijah's taking it all in. Now he's nervous because he knows his time's coming up. He's going to have to do this. And uh, he's sitting there. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them. Now, why did he mock him? I, I can imagine him standing there and the Lord saying, um, tell them to cry louder for their God. And Elijah says, uh, cry aloud for he's a God. Either he's meditating or he's, he's busy or he's, he's on a journey per, perhaps. He, he's sleeping. Maybe he needs to be awakened. Yeah, Lord, these are funny. And actually, you know, you, you guys have heard, and it's true, that, that in the Hebrew nuance of the language, part of it is saying when he's busy, he's, he's, maybe he's in the bathroom. And, and, and he's, he's mocking them. And as he's doing this, and he's telling them to cry louder, they cried aloud, and then they began to cut themselves. He had them just so fired up. And as was their custom with knives and lances until blood gushed out of them, I mean, it was just a bloody mess. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. You know, you go into the Chinese restaurants and there's the brass Buddha and they put the fruit up there and he's got a big belly and I don't know how he got it because he never eats. And they wait for the fruit to rot and they take it down, they go get more fruit and they put it back up there and Buddha never eats it. And, and, the, and, and there is no God, they have no one to call on and they say, well, it's science. Well, okay, let's use your science because science is obviously deductive in addition to inductive. And so as we apply these, yours breaks down because you don't have a foundation. And as you just follow, you know, the second law of thermodynamics that everything reduces to its least common denominator and, and from, you know, goes from order to chaos and breaks down. Why is it that you say we're evolving, which is contrary to the second law of thermodynamics? Well, I, I, I and you just, you, you go through their own science and they can't defend it. So they just make up lies and they change, they, 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 they change the findings and they rewrite the, the temperatures and on and on and on. So there's no voice. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me and we're going to do this. Let's get close. And you can imagine his heart is pounding. He's nervous. God, you got to show up. Do you remember the story I told you when I went to the mosque on Borchard? The mayor of the city said, asked all the council members to come out after the president's executive order on immigration. And Mayor Bill de la Pena said, Rob, I want you to come out. I said, it's a Sunday, Claudia. I've got two services. She said, please come out. I said, Claudia, nobody there is going to like me. Everyone who voted against me is going to be there. I mean, John Cummings, the guy who wrote the article in the sun, you know, that they wrote about it, heads up Indivisible Conejo, the George Soros thing. He's monitoring me. I mean, this is awful. Claudia, really? She goes, Rob, please come out. All right. And I remember that Sunday, I saw the article. My heart's pounding a little bit. I finished the two services. I'm thinking, I don't want to go to the mosque. Honor those in positions of authority over you. You know, I, I'm immortal until God's done with me. I've said that from the pulpit. <laughs> I got to go live it. It's, it's easy to be bold behind the wooden box. And so I parked the car and, and I'm walking and the crowd is massive and they're stopping traffic and they've got signs that are the antithesis of what I believe. And I'm walking up there and I'm on the other side of the street and, I'm, I, and I actually called Michelle and I said, I love you, I'm gonna miss you. I just wanna call and say goodbye. <laughs> and I, 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 I was nervous, I prayed. I said, God, would you send me a friend? And he, he's funky that way. I turned to my right and there's a guy in full Muslim outfit. Hello, <laughs> you know, I'm like, how you doing? Uh, my name's Rob. I'm Samir. Hi, Samir. Nice to meet you. He goes, thank you for coming out today. I said, oh, my, I work for Skyworks and da, da, da. Oh, do you know Dr. Bill Lee? Oh, yeah, I know. And so we hit it off. He says, well, come over. I'll introduce you to some of the moms. I'm like, okay. So I'm following him. As we get across the street, everyone is looking at me like, why are you here? Parting the Red Sea. Oh, my gosh. And we get up there. And why, why is he with him? How does he know him? And we go in and meet the moms and everything. And we finish. And we come back. And 
Claudia sees me and she comes running up. I'm so glad you're here. I was the only council member that showed up other than the mayor. And she says, I'm so glad you're here. I said, well, Claudia, you asked me to come, I'm here. And, and, and she says, I got you a name badge. And she puts it up on my chest and says, Rob McCoy. And Samir goes, you're Rob McCoy? I'm like, yes, Samir. I mean, I'm not who you thought I was. You certainly aren't who I thought you were. He laughed. He said, well, this is my, my new wife. I said, hello. And at that moment, Claudia says, Rob, I want you to meet somebody. I'm like, okay. She says, Rob, or she says, John Cummings, I want you to meet Rob McCoy. And John is looking at me. And he's, he's a, a homosexual man, and, and he just doesn't like me at all. And I look at him, I go, John, I came today so it'd be easier to monitor me. You know, because he, <laughs> and he laughed, and I go, come here, I give him a hug. And I, I kind of, you know, and, and just smiling, and I stand in the front row with all the speakers, and they're progressive, you know, left. But what was fascinating is each one of them was respectful of the fact that I was there and their rhetoric and their tone changed with the exception of John's. And what was said about John from others that, I, that were there, his was just out of place. It was militant. It was painful. It wasn't kind. And he was looking at me the, the whole time. And, and all of a sudden people came up and they were so happy I was there. And all of a sudden a bridge is built. And I saw a couple of members of the congregation that were brave enough to come out. And I saw Tom Stephan. He came up. Rob, I'm so proud of you coming. I'm scared to death, but thank you. Now, that's not an Elijah moment, but the reality is I was standing in the midst of prophets of Baal. And I was nervous, but I can't imagine my life being on the line because I'm, I'm okay. Hey, everybody, you've all had a chance to speak. Now I'm going to call down fire. Watch this. That's not going to happen. But you know what? The more troublesome the times, the more demand to stand. And you will stand in a place where there's not going to be any wiggle room. There was still civility while I was there. It's not always going to be this way. It, it, it used to be the libertarian of approach to homosexuality. Just leave us alone. Let us do what we want in, in the privacy of our home. Now it's, you need to bake a cake for me. You need to sell flowers for my wedding. And if you don't, you're going to jail and I'm taking your business. It's changing rapidly. 2943, you heard from, from Dr. Joey Nicolosi on Sunday. He's going to lose his practice. Dr. Michael Brown can no longer sell those books. I will be in, in jeopardy. It's, it's rapidly changing. And so here it is. It's now Elijah's turn. He tells the people to come near, verse 30. So all the people came near to him. He repaired the altar. You know what he did with the altar? How many tribes of Israel are there? He takes 12 stones. Most of the people had never seen this before. He rebuilds the nation with the concept of this misbah. He makes this, this beautiful monument to the Lord, just like they did when they crossed the Red Sea. And they're watching this, and they get this, the, the, the symbolism of it. And he repairs the altar. That's the slaughter place. It's where we go to die that God might live. It's where we lay our life down, this altar, this slaughter place. And he repairs it. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name, one governed by God. That's what Israel means, governed by God. Who are we governed by? Don't answer that, but think. I said, don't answer that, just think. (laughs) But you answered because God told you to. So good, I'm I'm kidding. The idea is, we want to believe we're governed by God. And if so, and we don't waver between two positions, why do we watch what we watch and tolerate what we tolerate and do what we do? How can we stand idly by and say this is acceptable? I want to believe I'm governed by God. But am I contending for the culture? It's easy to say, but I got news for you. He's about to have to act on it. And he's in a rock and a hot place, hard place. And so he built the altar and he said, it's the name of the Lord. And this idea that the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. And he recounts the fact of what made Israel so significant. You know what it is? The word of God. You know why we study the scriptures every Sunday morning to memorize? How many people have been here on a Sunday morning when we've done the scriptures? Please raise your hand. Okay. The majority of you. If I called on you right now, could you recite one of them? Because I'm going to do it. 
kidding. I've hidden thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. This idea of being governed by God and his word, that it is the vernacular of my life and I can recite any verse or any area that pertains to life because I have studied to show myself approved under God, a workman need not be ashamed. We're trying to put that into you so it comes out of you. And, and, and this, is, this is what makes God's people significant. They're governed by his word. That is inductive. That is the foundation that we now deduce the rest of his creation. And so with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two sayas of seed. He put the wood in order uh, and, and, he, and he cuts it. They, excuse me, cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood and said, fill four water pots with water, poured on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. He's getting water on it. He's thinking, I'm buying time. I mean, water, no water, if he's shown up, but this is get, and go get some more water. And you're up on Carmel and the well's not working. No, 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 no. Go down and get the really heavy water at the, at the base, you know, down in the valley and, 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 and take your time. Why don't you get lunch while you're at it? I remember one time I was in a public school and I was, I, I'm not allowed to talk about Jesus or the Bible and I'm doing a message on abstinence and I, I said the four greatest drives of male adolescence are, are for air, water, uh, food, and sex drive, fourth most intense drive, sex drive. And uh, this young kid in the front, um, you know, all the girls thought he was cute and he says, uh, and I'd given examples and everything and he said it, he invoked the name of God, I did, and he said, hey, I got a, I got a question for you. I, I called him, I said, yeah, and he said, don't you test drive a car before you buy it? He was talking about sleeping with somebody. And all the girls were like, <laughs> and then he said, and my other question is, why would God make me this way? Four most intense drives, sex drive being number four. Why would God make me this way? And then say, wait until marriage. Is he cruel or something? And the, and, and the first question I could answer, because I'd already given him the answer. The second question, I needed people to go get water to buy some time. <laughs> So the first one, I said, yes, you do test drive a car before you buy it. But if I'm not mistaken, a car is an object, not a human being. And all the girls were like, yeah. <laughs> He's like, okay, all right, I got you. He goes, but why would God make me this way and say, wait? Because you say a male sex drive peaks between the age of 15 and 18. And most people don't get married until they're in their mid to late 20s. After their se- the male sexual drive has started to decline a little bit. Why would God do that? And he said it again, is he cruel or something? And when he said it, I was thinking, yeah, I think he is cruel. It's kind of bothering me too. I mean, any male could attest to that. Why? Why have you made me this way? This is killing me. And I'm like, yeah, okay, let's go home. No. And and the Bible says, if any man lacks wisdom, all he need to do is ask of the Lord. And I seriously, I said a prayer. I said, God, you better, you better bring some fire. Because I don't have any idea how to answer him. And all the kids are going, yeah, what's up with that? And this voice spoke to me, not mocking like, you know, the still small voice that was telling him to ask if your God's in the bathroom. But it was a voice that said, uh, ask him about his dad. I'm like, okay. You, You got a good... you got, you got a, you got a dad. I mean, you do. Everybody does. You you got a good dad. He goes, no, my dad's a jerk. He divorced my mom. He's never around. Okay. So, so he's not a good dad. No. Is he a good husband? No, I told you he left my mom. What? What? I'm just getting some water. (laughs) And, and the Lord said, tell him about Jeff. Now, Jeff was a guy I'd used in an example earlier who had waited until he was married before he had his first sexual experience. It was their honeymoon night. The very first time he ever kissed a woman, the very first time his wife ever kissed a man was on their, their wedding day when they said, I do, and they kissed at the altar. Very first sexual experience when they crossed the threshold in the honeymoon suite. Jeff's a great guy. He says, tell him about Jeff. The Lord tells him, tell him about Jeff. I'm like, okay, Lord, Jeff. I said, the reason why you should wait until you're married before you have uh, sex is because Jeff. He's like, what? I'm like, I, I'm, I'm working this out. Let's get some more water. <laughs> Hurry up. And all of a sudden it clicks. And I go, Jeff. He goes, what do you mean, Jeff? I go, I told you about him. Let me tell you more about Jeff. This guy who waited un- until he got married to have his first sexual experience, put his fourth most intense drive on hold. Now, a man can't do without air. He can't do without water or food. And he can't do or water and he can't do without food. 
But contrary to popular belief, he can do without sex. I mean, most men would hold their breath to, or go without food or water. But you can live without this, but you can't live without these. I said, and he put that on hold to keep himself safe, free from harm or danger, both physically and emotionally for his future spouse. Never had to worry about sexually transmitted diseases. Never had to worry about unwanted pregnancies. None of those things. But I want to tell you more about Jeff as I'm building this case and trying to wait for the Lord to tell me. And I said, I know Jeff. God isn't cruel. I felt so good saying that because it was the first time I'd heard myself say it. I said, he's not cruel. He's in the business of making men. I said, a guy who takes the fourth most intense drive he has and puts it on hold. I want to tell you about Jeff. I was at Jeff's house. We were watching a football game. He was a Raider fan. Fourth quarter, less than a minute remaining on the clock. Score was tied. We're glued to the television set. And, and, and just as they're getting ready to score, his wife comes in with groceries and the kids hanging on her legs. He turned off the TV to help her in with the groceries. I'm like, dude, turn on the TV. And all the girls are going, oh, he's, he's awesome. That's, that's touching. I said, I was at his house. It was a dinner party. I saw when it was finished, his wife was having a conversation. He started to help with the dishes. I've never seen, I, I, I didn't even know what a dish was. His two-year-old came into the room with a diaper that was so full and it stunk so bad. Moses parting the Red Sea, birds falling out of the sky. If that child ran up to me, I would say, hey, go find your mother. He ran up to Jeff. Jeff goes, hey, little buddy, let's go get that diaper changed. The girls are going, oh, that is just, that's the best. That's awesome. And I turned to this kid and I said, wouldn't you like to have had a dad like Jeff? He goes, yeah. I go, wouldn't your mom like to have had a husband like Jeff? He goes, yeah. I said, you don't get to pick the parents you get in this world, but you can pick the kind of parent you're going to be. The reason why God does that is he's training you to be a man, how to serve, how to deny yourself for the sake of another human being, because that's what dads do. I'm thinking, that's got to be really, did that get recorded? Because I want to listen to that again. (laughs) I didn't know that when I went in. That was a gift from the Lord, and it resonated with a kid, and he got it. And and I've, I've shared that thousands of times, and people have gotten it. I've gotten it every time. It resonates. Well, that's the idea of waiting for the water. And I think he's actually trying to buy time. Long illustration for that. But that's my point. And so he says, bring the water. And, uh, and then he lays this out. Watch verse 37. Wait, no, no, 36. It came to pass at that time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. You commanded me. Now I got news for you. When, you. when you operate in the context of God's word, it is yes and amen. He reminds the Lord, I've done what you've asked me to do in accordance with your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. And so they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and they executed them there. I share that with you because, I'm running out of time. I I share that with you because we're going to be called on to stand upon God's word in a culture that has denied it and rejected it. I showed you on Sunday the social barometers that have all declined since the Bible was taken out of school and prayer was taken out of school, and nobody's contending for that. So we're discipling nations, we're equipping us to stand firm because we will be put in those situations. And the question is, are we just going to get along? And you remember the story that the, the rail cars filled with Jews would come through Nazi Germany and they'd be dying of thirst on Sunday. And the church members who were in service, who got to keep their churches and their pensions, as they were all crying and they could hear the cries, instead of going out to help because they'd be slaughtered themselves or sent to concentration camps like Martin Niemöller, when they heard the cries of the people dying, all they did was sing their hymns louder. They would have to dust off the ashes of their car to drive to church on Sunday. When is enough enough? The cool thing is, God's going to whittle us down to where we're standing on top of a mountain and all of our adversaries are facing us and we're going to either stand on his word 
or not. We're going to be beheaded either way. I'm glad it turned out the way it did for Elijah. All the prophets got slaughtered. He motivated an entire nation. Uh, here's kind of a picture. And, and I, I want to share this with you. I, I look at this. Does anyone, May 3rd, does anyone know? It's Thursday, May 3rd. I'm sorry, what? So some of you know about it, National Day of Prayer. You know what that is? That, that is a Mount Carmel moment. Do you know why we gather on the front of the city hall to pray? We're declaring that, that, that this is what we long for in our city, in our county, in our state, in our nation, and through the world. We're, we're, we're crying out to God and making a stand. And we're going to pray for our leaders. They're going to come out. And you know what? A lot of them, they're showing up just like everyone else is, saying, is this God valid? I mean, is he really powerful? Is there anything to this, or is it just a bunch of people going through their motions? And we show up in force, and we begin to pray, and I have to tell you what has transpired in the last two years that we've done this National Day of Prayer, and we brought the city council members out. You have seen a distinct change in the entire culture of that council. Yeah, the mayor said so. And next year, the mayor will say so too. And the idea is we make a difference when we stand on that mountain. It's a mountain of prayer, declaring God's word, praying it in, making a stand for the Lord. Um, oh, we got a little time. You guys have heard it, but I want you to see it again. This is a, uh, ben, Benjamin Franklin's prayer in the Continental Congress. Remember we went through this? They were, they were locked as to how to, they had, the, they, had the, they had the executive branch, they had the judicial branch, but they didn't have a concept for the legislative branch because most of the population was located in four of the states and the rest had the rest of the population and some were slaves and some were free and they wanted representation, but they wanted representation based on population, but the smaller states wanted equal representation as the larger states. They didn't know what to do. They'd come to deadlock and, and the con- uh, Constitutional Convention was over and they began to walk away. George Washington ran after George May said, you've got to come back, please. Let's come back in. And the only person to have ever signed all three major documents of, the, of, of American history, which was Benjamin Franklin, the Paris Peace Accord, the, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Uh, Constitution. He was in his 80s. He had gout. He could barely stand. He, he was sick. And he stands up and he says, a small progress we have made after four or five weeks, close attendance and continual reasoning with each other. Our different sentiments on almost every question, several of the last producing as many no's as eyes, is methinks a melancholy proof of the imperfection of human understanding. We indeed seem to feel our own want of political wisdom. Where do you get wisdom, by the way? Fear the Lord. And if you lack it, what do you need to do? How do you ask? Some we have been running about in search of it. We've gone back to ancient history for models of government and examined the different forms of those republics, which having been formed with the seeds of their own disillusion now no longer exist. And we have viewed modern states all around Europe, but find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. In this situation, this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? In the beginning of this contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence uh, in our favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see that this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And then he said, I firmly believe this and also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing governments be human wisdom and leave it to chance, war and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move and henceforth 
prayers, imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of the city be requested to officiate in that service. And to this day, the, the Congress is, the, the legislature is always open with prayer every morning by the chaplain of the Senate. And then we've got the National Day Prayer coming up, and I, I'll leave you with these two quotes. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If I sit next to a madman as he drives a car into a group of innocent bystanders, I can't, as a Christian, simply wait for the catastrophe, then comfort the wounded and bury the dead. I must try to wrestle the steering wheel out of the hands of the driver. There's work to be done, folks. And he had this one, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so... I would say the very first time, very first thing we can do is let's all gather on Mount Carmel, which is going to be on Civic Lawn on May 3rd. I don't know what you're doing, but I think you can cancel it. And come out and pray. And let's call some, some fire down on the city. And when I mean fire, I don't mean destruction. I mean revival of human hearts. And watch what God will do. Watch what he'll do. Are we that desperate? Are we that desperate yet that we're willing to pray? Or do we think we can still finagle this thing somehow? Because God can make it worse if you really want it. And so National Day of Prayer, May 3rd. That was the point of the message tonight. Come out and pray with us. Amen.